You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado. Once again, it's been... About five days since I last recorded a podcast. This is episode 38 of season three, episode 103 of this podcast. I had a good time in Wyoming, but I am so glad to be home. I felt a little bit guilty. I told my wife last night that being away from everybody was a lonely experience. Being away from Lauren and the kids was lonely. I ate well, and I had plenty of peace and quiet. But I got tired of sitting, I got tired of not getting up and cleaning up things and picking up things off the floor and helping with laundry, I got tired of being interrupted by nothing. I kind of missed my children hanging on the side of my office chair and wanting to tell me about Pokemon and the Paw Patrol. But I'm home now and I'm happy to be home, I'm glad to be home, and uh, I had a good training. It was a good training put on by Darren Brumley with ABB. Darren, if you're listening, thank you for the training. Once again, that was invaluable. Got a lot out of it and uh, you did a good job putting it on. But uh, the drive up to Casper and back again, I was able to listen to Vody T. Bacham's Fault Lines, the Social Justice Movement and Evangelicalism's Looming Catastrophe, narrated by Myron Willis. It was eight hours and two minutes. The short version of this podcast is that this is a really good and timely audiobook, and you need to listen to it. But the long version we'll get into here in just a minute. But first, I want to talk about my recalibration process. And what I mean by recalibration is not that... I'm recalibrating a device, although sometimes I do that in my line of work. I don't mean that I'm recalibrating the instruments at work. What I mean by recalibrating is I'm I'm trying to recalibrate my expectations right now. And again, that was a conversation I had with my wife last night after the kids went to bed. Right now, we're sorting through some health issues, and her health is getting better and better. But there's a sense in which it's scary. It's frightening to have her health get better because it's unknown. We're suddenly realizing just how bad her health issues have been all this time. I mean, before I knew her, even this stuff had started because it's a genetic condition and that genetic condition had a domino effect. It made her more susceptible to other conditions. But first and foremost, the genetic condition has been with her since birth. And so I, for one, I'm not prepared for what this looks like for her to be feeling better and having more energy and and being alert and engaged and cheerful. I mean, tired, but not dead tired, not dog tired, not I got nothing left in the tank tired at the end of the day. The conversation that Lauren and I were able to have last night before we drifted off to sleep was different. And I don't know how to explain that to people who have always had pretty good health and their spouse has always had pretty good health. I just don't even know 
I, I mean, your your situation is as foreign to me as my situation is foreign to you, right? So you're probably thinking the same thing. You don't know what that's like. And maybe it sounds horrible and terrible and awful and scary and terrifying for you to imagine being in my situation. But for me, oddly enough, the prospect of suddenly having Lauren's health be so much better is also kind of scary because it's unknown, right? It's unfamiliar. And I have to recalibrate my expectations, my expectations for her, my expectations of myself, my expectations of everything else that our marriage affects and touches. And that can be a daunting challenge. It can be difficult. I'm not going to be rushing the process this is one of those times where it's good to just slow down, take your time. But in any event, that brings us to the topic, the main topic of this podcast, which is fault lines. And actually, coincidentally, or not coincidentally, the recalibration of expectations is related to fault lines. You think about the Civil War here in America. 1860s, we on the northern side of things, and I had ancestors, I had grandfathers, great-grandfathers on both the north and the south side of that fight, but I identify with the winners, I've always identified with the Union, I'm a Yankee, and uh, I'm not ashamed of that fact, I think that slavery as it was practiced in the south was evil, Not that slavery is categorically evil, but that slavery, the way that the southern states wanted to maintain it, was unbiblical, it was contrary to God's law, and it was needing abolished. The arguments that were made by southern theologians and pastors to defend the institution of slavery as it was practiced in the south always sidestepped the requirements. They made mention that slavery was not outright abolished in the Bible, and therefore you have no right to be going beyond the scriptures and abolishing it. But they didn't want to talk about how slavery was regulated in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, how it was treated and how it was talked about. They didn't want to talk about that. And they certainly didn't downstream want to be constrained by how slavery was regulated in the Old Testament. So there was a war, and the South lost, Southern whites lost, and even in emancipation and the setting free of those black slaves in the South, the blacks in the South lost because it was an upset in their status quo and it was a change in circumstances, maybe for the better in you know, the grand scheme of things. But in the short term, it was extremely disruptive and there was a backlash on the part of the KKK. And I just have finished reading Ron Chernow's excellent biography of Ulysses S. Grant. Grant showed remarkable courage and remarkably forward-thinking, or shall we say, uh, correct, uh, 
attitudes towards black Americans. He came from an abolitionist family, and he treated black Americans with respect, genuinely, and not in an affected way, not in a mercenary way, just so he could use them as pawns. It seems to me, anyway, he treated them with a genuine affection and respect and was protective of their rights when he saw Southern Democrats and also moderate Republicans wanting to just sell black Americans down the river and allow them to be treated any old way. But there were decades of mistreatment that that blacks in America suffered because there were holdover attitudes from Democrats and from moderate Republicans, attitudes which said that black Americans are inferior and white Americans, and particularly the Jim Crow South, have every right to treat them as second-class citizens. If they step out of line, anything goes on putting them back in line as the white establishment sees the line and as the white establishment sees the proper place for black Americans. But be it noted that from the beginning of this country's history, ever since the beginning, just as you've had racist persons who wanted any excuse they could find to oppress and mistreat other people based on the color of their skin and some distinction like that, you've had clear-headed white Americans and black Americans and red Americans and yellow Americans who say, wait a second, that doesn't make sense. And they have genuinely, for all intents and purposes, treated their fellow man, regardless of his skin color, with respect. And so we can't paint with broad brushes and say that social justice needs to happen and all the white people go over there and all the black people come over here And we surely cannot say that all of the white people need to be woke now and social justice is the way to go. Vody Bauckham's book on this subject, particularly within the evangelical Christian community in America, is so timely. And he does some personal history, talks about his upbringing, growing up, being raised by a single mom, and getting into some trouble and playing dumb in school because he was trying to fit in with his homies, his mom finding out and coming to the school, and basically having a come-to-Jesus moment with him, wherein she said, we don't play dumb in this house. In In this family, we have a good name, You do everything you can to protect and preserve that good name, and we do not play dumb. You're going to operate at your ability. You're going to be excellent. You're not going to tone it down just so you can fit in with your buddies. You're not going to get into the gangs. This is Los Angeles. You're not going to get involved in the gangs, the Crips and the Bloods. That's not going down. You're going to study. You're going to use your head. You're going to get an education. You're going to do well. Football? No. Not if your grades aren't up. So kudos to Mrs. Bauckham. She did a very fine job, and she's a hero in my estimation. I really enjoyed Fody's treatment of his upbringing, 
uh, by her. I thought it was really excellent. And it was very touching, and it was funny, and it was moving, and it was inspiring. And I love that he doesn't make an excuse of the fact that his dad wasn't around. He doesn't make an excuse of the fact that as a black man, a young black man, and then now an older black man, he's been mistreated. He doesn't make excuses for racism. But then he doesn't make it into this obsession the way that so many others in the evangelical church and broader society are damn determined to do these days. He doesn't make racism or race into an obsession. Yes, it's a thing. Yes, we should pay some attention to it and understand it. But is it the existential threat it's being treated like? There's some interesting history in here besides just Fody Bauckham's personal history, which is good in and of itself. If it was the only thing you got out of the book, it would be worthwhile because that's the thing these days is lived experiences. We all want to know about lived experiences. Well, read his. Read his. But he talks about ethnic Gnosticism, and I'd never heard the term before, but it makes sense. And ethnic Gnosticism is this unspoken assumption, sometimes spoken assumption, maybe not put in these terms or compared to Gnostic Christianity in the early church. But Gnostic Christianity claimed to some special knowledge that was not just in the scriptures. It was some special knowledge that only the elect had. And the Gnostics embraced a whole host of additional books that were not embraced by the historical Orthodox Church, Christian Church. The early church fathers didn't endorse them. In fact, they rejected them emphatically after studying them and finding glaring faults and forgeries and contradictions with what was known scripture. But the Gnostics believed that this special knowledge was part of what saved them and it made them superior to everybody else. And ethnic Gnosticism is this idea that somebody's skin color alone puts them on a higher spiritual plane than everybody else. That somebody having darker skin color or just being not white As long as you're not white, you're on a higher spiritual plane. Well, the consequence of that is that if you're on a lower spiritual plane because you're white, how do you ever speak about these things? You're never allowed the time of day to say, well, wait a second, this doesn't make sense. Unless, unless you kowtow, unless you embrace critical social justice, critical theory, critical race theory. And as Bakum points out, a tragic number of prominent Christian teachers and pastors are publicly and have been for the past several years embracing and teaching from pulpits these things. And these things are not innocuous. It's not no big deal. Critical theory is Marxism. It is not biblical. This fundamental transformation as former President Barack Obama would put it, this fundamental transformation of Christian teaching, Christian understandings of who God is and who we are, of our sin problem, of our need for a Savior, of the relationship between our good works and salvation, 
the object of our faith, all of these things, justice especially, all of these things are not just tweaked a little bit. And the woke pastors and the woke Christians will tell you as much. These things are not tweaked a little bit. They're fundamentally transformed. And any time you have the historic faith, which was delivered once for all, that gospel being tampered with, your hairs on the back of your neck should be standing straight up. This is exactly what Jude is talking about, the kind of thing that Jude is talking about in the book of Jude, right before the book of Revelation. That was our previous episode of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. We covered that one chapter of Jude. He says, contend for the faith, which was delivered once for all. The funny thing to me is that you have in Jude a warning to not trust in false teachers who have crept into the church unnoticed, claiming authority from their dreams, promoting sensuality, living in an ungodly way, trampling on the grace of our Lord and Savior. And yet, what is it that the proponents of critical theory, critical race theory, social justice, what is it that they're doing? Well, they're creeping into the church. Read Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. He advocates making friends with all the priests in a parish. And then once they're friends, you slowly introduce ideas that undermine and erode the teaching of the church. You don't come right out at the first and tell everybody, hey, I think we should push for abortion on demand, partial birth abortion, contraceptives, taxpayers subsidized. You don't come right out and say that at the beginning when the official position of the Roman Catholic Church is that those things are bad and wrong and against God's design for the family and for sexuality, that those things are murder even. You don't come right out and say that at the beginning when you know that you're going to be coming up against a brick wall. You insinuate yourself, you ingratiate yourself, you make friends with the priests. And then once you start promoting these ideas and the bishop gets a hold of this fact that you're spreading false doctrines, the priests are the ones that stick up for you. They're the ones that come to your defense. And the same thing has happened in the evangelical church. Bacham is much more gracious than I'm tempted to be at times when I hear about Tim Keller's and David Platt's apologizing for being white from the pulpit and by extension condemning every white person in their churches and all as a means of showing favoritism to the woke crowd in their midst. Please, please, please don't throw tomatoes at me. Don't cancel me. Please eat me last. Or, or, worse yet, they really believe this critical theory stuff. They really believe the social justice stuff. A, maybe they don't understand it fully, which I really don't think is the case with Tim Keller. But maybe others don't understand it so well. It sounds good. And they keep seeing it from the Gospel Coalition. And the Gospel Coalition's legit, right? Christianity Today is legit, right? Caleb is legit, right? No. You know what's legit? 
God's word. God's word is where we need to be getting our thinking from and our worldview from. That is to say we don't listen to anything else. Obviously, Vody T. Bacham Jr.'s fault lines is not scripture. And even he says in there, and I'm glad to hear him saying it. I appreciated his section on reading other books outside of our circle. He said that he actually reads far more books that he disagrees with or from authors with whom he disagrees than he reads books that he agrees with. That helps him to sharpen his critical thinking skills. It helps him to understand better what other people are thinking and saying and believing in their own words rather than secondhand. And that's good. I agree with that. But he points out we have a lot of evangelical leaders in the church who are embracing critical theory. It is a Marxist ideology. It is far more dangerous than the racism it is purported to save us from. And it's not even going to do that. It's not even going to save us from racism. Racism is going to be with us till Jesus comes back, takes us home, and perfects his saints, period. Is it the end of the world that people sometimes have a second thought when they encounter somebody of a, a different skin color, a different ethnicity, a different background for whom English might be a second language? Is it the end of the world if they watch them just a little more closely or they're a little more gun-shy? Bakum doesn't think so. I don't think so either. The problem at the root of all of our suffering, all of our pain, is not the inequality in incomes, in outcomes. It is not racism. The problem at the root is sin, which leads to death, which causes separation between us and one another, between us and a holy and righteous God who made us, who sustains us, that is the problem at the heart. And from that initial root problem of sin, of disobedience, of rebellion against God, come other problems and symptoms, but they're the fruit. The tree is this rebellious, sinful, wicked attitude and heart. That's why we need a savior. But the critical social justice crowd doesn't know anything of my savior. They think that being a social justice warrior is what saves you. And they have no idea of grace. They have no idea of forgiveness. They don't believe in grace and forgiveness. The Civil War, it doesn't matter that that happened. That's all a tale of oppressors and oppressed and white Northerners trying to exploit the black slavery in the South to get power over white Southerners. That's all that story is to the social justice crowd. They scoff and they mock and they revel in their ignorance on the topic because they don't know half so much as their theory supposedly explains. They have no way of critically thinking about it, but they're hypercritical of everything that they don't understand. And they're destroyed by those things which, like unreasoning animals, they instinctively understand. In Bakum's book, he talks quite a lot about 
the history of the Southern Baptist Convention. And I have been friends for a number of years with Shadrach Black, who is one of the coordinators for uh, the Baptist Global Outreach Missions Organization. And I've talked with him over the years about various key critical junctures in the SBC when they made headlines promoting Black Lives Matter as a slogan, when they issued a joint statement with the NAACP, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. I asked him, what's going on? And he said, it's political. You have liberal denominations who hemorrhaged black churches because they were evolving on issues which the black community, the black churches in America weren't ready to compromise on. But as a condition for getting and keeping these black churches in the SBC, and the SBC so desperate to erase and make penance for some of their having gotten it wrong in decades and centuries past, the SBC has embraced woke Christianity. These black churches that left their liberal denominations were the most conservative churches in their denominations before, and now that they're in the SBC, they're the most progressive churches in their denomination, their new denomination. And they are loud and proud about pushing certain ideas which have crept into their churches, pushing those on the SBC. And because the SBC is having a hard time standing up to cancel culture and woke Christianity, it's embracing these woke Christian ideas for fear of being labeled racist. And Vody Bakum, coincidentally, who I had the pleasure of listening to twice when Lauren and I were at Cedarville University. We both got to hear him twice in chapel, once in the spring and once in the fall. Vody Bakum, right around that time, is rising up through the ranks of the SBC and putting forward resolutions trying to oppose the liberalization of the SBC. Hey, you know what? Here's an idea. Let's get our kids out of the American public schools because they're teaching our children to be little atheists. They're teaching our children to be humanists, secular humanists. They're teaching our children to resent and scoff at everything that we believe and hold dear as Christians. As he points out, 85% of the SBC's children are sent to public schools. He was branded a radical. Hey, Disney as a corporation is promoting homosexuality, transgenderism, etc., etc., LGBTQ identities on their programs. They're pushing this stuff on our children. We need to boycott Disney. Yeah, maybe. Maybe, maybe not. He's a radical. He's a radical until Al Mohler steps in and says, yeah, I agree with that. You're, right. You're absolutely right. But here's the problem. It shouldn't take Al Mohler, and it shouldn't take Vody Bauckham, and it shouldn't take Tim Keller, and it shouldn't take David Platt, and it shouldn't take John Piper, and it shouldn't take John MacArthur saying X, Y, or Z for us to know the truth. The scriptures, the word is truth. 
We are standing on shaky ground, as the publisher's summary points out. I'll read for you this synopsis here. As a wave of violent riots protesting the death of a black man at the hands of police shook the nation in the summer of 2020, most Americans were shocked. Christians nationwide, eager to fulfill their God-given calling to bring peace and reconciliation, took to pulpits and social media in droves to affirm that black lives matter and proclaim that racial justice is a gospel issue. But what if those Christians, those ministers, and those powerful ministries don't know the whole story behind the new movement that's been making waves in their congregations? Even worse, what if they've been duped into adopting a set of ideas that not only don't align with the kingdom of God, but stand diametrically opposed to it? In this powerful audiobook, pastor, professor, and leading cultural apologist Vody Bauckham explains the sinister worldview behind the social justice movement and how it has quietly spread like a fault system, not only through our culture, but throughout the evangelical church in America. He also details the devastation it is already wreaking and what we can do to get back on solid ground before it's too late. Whether you're a layperson who feels like you've just woken up in a strange new world and wonder how to engage both sensitively and effectively in the conversation on race, or a pastor who's wondering how to deal with increasingly polarized factions within your congregation, this audiobook will provide the clarity and understanding you need to either hold your ground or reclaim it. So, real quick, before I run out of time here, that's the publisher's summary. This is not being divisive, folks, if that's a thought. I read through the book, the first half on Monday, driving up to Casper, the second half, on Thursday, driving back home to Greeley. This is not a divisive book. This is a book about a division which has been introduced by our enemy, our adversary, the devil goes about as a roaring lion. Have you read that? Are you familiar with that? He goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The division is not Vody Bauckham's fault just because he's talking about it. The division already exists. In fact, when you look in the New Testament, you look at the Judaizers, you look at Simon the Sorcerer, you look at false teachers as they're addressed in the book of Jude, for instance. The division exists not because God's people, God's servants pointed out. This is not a three monkeys scenario in which you just cover your eyes, cover your ears, cover your mouth see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil, and it doesn't exist. The division exists. It's apparent, it's obvious, it's consequential. What are we going to do about it? As he draws the analogy, sometimes fault lines are places where you have a lot of instability. You have a lot of earthquakes, for instance, uh, along the San Andreas Fault. And Because people know this, and there have been devastating earthquakes, which have destroyed a lot of property and killed a lot of people, and that's a scary thing. And you know that they're going to continue happening because of where you're at and just the dynamics of the situation. Later construction makes use of the fact that we know we're on a fault line here. So you know you're on a fault line theologically, socially, culturally, politically, with regards to these racial questions of our day, these racial incidents, policing in America, relations between blacks and whites in America, 
the social justice movement and evangelicalism's looming catastrophe is there whether we talk about it or we don't. If you say, I don't want to be divisive, I don't want to get into all of that, you're just ignoring the problem. Your coping mechanism, your coping strategy is avoidance. But the problem doesn't go away just because you refuse to pay attention to it. Now, you'll remember at the beginning of this episode, I talked about my wife's health being bad for a long time, getting better all of a sudden, but it's been bad for a long time, and we've gotten very much used to it being bad. At a certain point, you have to give these things over into the hands of God. And what I mean is you don't just give the whole social justice problem into the hands of God and just leave it at that and do nothing. No, contend for the faith, as Jude says. He says, contend for the faith. Fight. Not get in a fist fight. Not go punch David Platt or Tim Keller when they apologize for being white. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what Jude is talking about. That's not what Vody Bachum is talking about. But debate these things. Be a Berean. Search the scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. And if they're not so, oppose false teaching in the church. Oppose false gospels being promulgated in the broader culture. Oppose those things forcefully, consistently. Study to show thyself approved, a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Always be prepared to give an answer to anybody who asks for a reason of the hope that lieth within you, but do so with gentleness and respect. Bacham does that in this book. He does give a reason for the hope that lies within him, and he does it with gentleness and respect. And I love so much Vody Bacham for the example he has set early on in my adult life going to Cedarville University he was the most influential person who came and spoke in my personal development. He set an excellent example in the way that he talked about things. I admire him so very much. Uh, actually, I, I got fired from a job. I talked about this here a few podcasts ago. I talked about this on the episode titled Hostile Work Environments. But I was listening to a Vody Bakum message it was a replay of a message that he had given, he delivered at Cedarville, and I had heard in person. But it was, a, it was about qualifications for overseers and deacons in the church. And how does the SBC handle it when somebody is applying to be a pastor and they say that they have a glass of wine with dinner versus when their kids are absolutely out of control? Their wife and their children are disrespectful and disobedient and disorderly. In the one situation, the SBC takes it extremely seriously, and they go way beyond what the scriptures even say as far as a qualification with regards to alcohol. He must not be addicted to much wine. It's not the same as he had better not even have a drop. Those are not the same things, as he pointed out. But he must be able to keep his household well, or else he can't manage the Lord's church. Well, eh. Nobody's perfect. Yeah. So he gives this sermon, gives this message at Cedarville, and it really impacted me. I, I so appreciated it. It was so refreshing. And it was part of why I stood up to Todd Toole, who was the pastor of First Baptist Church in Hillsboro, Ohio. It later came out that 
he had been having uh, an affair with one of the women in the church, a married woman in the church. He ended up leaving in disgrace. But before that, I confronted him because he told off-color jokes and he was just a sleazy person who scoffed at sincere Christian faith. He scoffed at it. He was divorced. His kids were out of control. They misbehaved. He didn't listen. They didn't obey. He didn't have a handle on it. And he came off as a used car salesman. He was not qualified, as I was reading Paul's qualifications delivered to Timothy and to Titus, he was not qualified to be a, an overseer or even a deacon in the church. He was setting a very bad example, and I confronted him about it. And my thank you was to sit down and chat with him about it, and then for him to proceed to go around the church and tell everybody what a pain in the ass I was. I wrote him a letter and said, hey, here's these qualifications. I'm not sure you meet them, actually. And just I mean, just like that, right? Like, I'm, I didn't get all worked up. I didn't yell. I didn't shout. I didn't throw things. I didn't just, hey, real quick, I'm not sure you're qualified for the position that you have. You're a nice guy. I like you. You have gifts. I don't think you need to be a pastor in order to serve in the church, which is true. I don't, I don't apologize for having said that to him. I wasn't in the wrong. I was right. His later sins finding him out, conduct, proved me right. But it was Vodibachim really that set the example for me in thinking more clearly about that. I was so inspired by his message that I thought, you know, that's right, actually. And you get people in this church environment, and that was true of First Baptist Church. You get people that make little comments behind the scenes, and I got sucked into it as a young man, just out of high school, sitting around, chatting after church, after youth group, whatever, after Bible study, chatting about it. And it occurred to me, wait a second, what are we doing? Right? This isn't biblical. His conduct and his attitude might not be biblical. Todd's might not be. Neither is this. Why aren't we confronting him directly? And so when I wrote my letter to Todd Toole, I started it off with an apology. I am sorry. I should have come to you first with this. Please forgive me. There were conversations happening. I participated in them. I shouldn't have. But here's the bottom line. You're not qualified to be a pastor. You're not qualified to be an overseer, according to God's word. Fast forward, and I'm working for Ralph Vance, installing flooring in Hillsboro, Ohio. And Brian Vance is an ordained minister. He's a traveling fill-in preacher. He's a gun for hire and married to a divorced woman. He's got stepchildren. His stepchildren are getting into things they shouldn't be. His marriage is a little bit wonky. His personal conduct and attitude and example is off. There's something off there that's not right. I come in just glowing, just I'm just excited, just like I do with the podcast, right? The, the reason why the podcast thing works is because it's just me, right? This is just how I've been my whole life is I, I just enjoy talking about things. And here, if I record it in a podcast version, then people, when they have time to listen to me talking about things, will have that less intrusive, less disruptive means of listening. And they'll have the space to think about it and, and not be put on the spot made to feel uncomfortable and all that. Because in the case of Brian Vance, I come in and I'm not recording a podcast he can listen to and think about and just 
Leisure time. I'm catching him off guard. And I'm talking about how great this Vody Baca message was. And I listened to it when we went to Cedarville. But I just heard it again. And here's what he's saying. And da-da-da. Well, that sounds like Jim Jones, the Heaven's Gate cult. What? What? Really? What Vody Bacham just preached out of Timothy and Titus sounds like Jim Jones. Right. Okay. You know what this is? Actually, this is you not being qualified to be a pastor, to be a preacher even. You're not qualified, even though you're ordained. Nobody should have ordained you. Okay? You're not qualified, and your toes are getting stepped on right now. And the way that you're going to get back is by flinging out this nonsensical accusation, this slanderous, nonsense, abusive claim that doesn't make a lick of sense. And then the next day you're going to get me fired because now you can't even look at me without being reminded of what a cowardly low thing you just did. Vody Bakum is not why I have been against social justice and critical theory and critical race theory and the Black Lives, Black Lives Matter movement. He is not the reason why I've been against those things for five plus years. But it is so refreshing to read his book and for him to be pointing out things that at On The Rock's blog, on my social media accounts, and my personal conversations, I've been trying to raise the alarm about because this is so serious. We have to take it seriously. It's not, are you saved or not based on which position you take, but it is, are you going to be saved like gold being pulled from a burning building? Serious. This is serious like, are you going to be saved by the skin of your teeth? Serious. This is serious like Lot being pulled out of Sodom and Gomorrah? Serious. Right before God destroyed them. We've got to take it seriously. So read his book. I don't want to wax eloquent and give everything away. It's only eight hours. It's not that long. Listen to it on double speed. Pay attention, folks. If you haven't educated yourself on social justice, here's an excellent summary. He does a wonderful job of doing it with gentleness and respect. And you should check it out. So thank you for listening. That's all for this episode. Till next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Hello, this is Garrett Ashley Mullet, host of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM, and also chief editor and writer at On The Rocks blog since 2015. I have just published my first book. It is available on paperback and Kindle from Amazon.com right now. Are you thinking about homeschooling? Is someone you know considering it? No shortage of books will help you figure out how to do it. This is a book about why you should. Written from the perspective of a homeschooling father of seven who was himself homeschooled growing up, this is an encouragement to fathers and mothers to think rightly about their children's education. 
What our children believe about God, themselves, one another, and the universe, these are all features of their education, and the worldview our children develop is downstream of the sort of education they receive. And this is why we homeschool. Maybe you are a parent of homeschooling children and you could use some encouragement. Perhaps your local school shut down and now remote learning or homeschooling has been forced on you. Now you could use some help finding motivation to make the best of it. Or maybe you have a friend or family member considering homeschooling their children. Rather than starting you off with another home education how-to, let us start with why we homeschool. And as we figure out the reasons we should do this thing, the way to do it will be made far easier. Just go right on over to Amazon.com and type in, and this is why we homeschool in the search results. It'll come right up. Order your copy today. 